Welcome to the Basketball Index Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor. Today we got Krishna producing, and we are talking about the state of the Warriors. We have Joe Virai. He's a freelance NBA writer, uh, also covers the Warriors. You can find his writing at Golden State of Mind and also Dub Nation HQ. Joe, how are you feeling about the uh, state of the Warriors coming off a championship? Well, to be honest, I'm still in that, you know, post, like, proverbially post-champagne period of the championship where <laughs> you just sit back, relax, and, like, just look – you just look at what happened the past season where, you know, to be honest, I expected the Warriors to be not a play-in team, but I expected them to be, I expected them to be in that top four, top three echelon, but not necessarily a lock for winning a championship. I mean, if, like, if, like, if things – went right for them they had a path towards that title but i certainly didn't expect it and for them to win it it's like wow like what a season what what like for me personally a season to cover because like i personally started doing this professionally the covering thing for the warriors in 2019 and they didn't win the finals you know the infamous clay injury the kd injury and then kd left after and then they were left with uh basically the worst team in the league after that because Steph got injured <laughs> early during that season so yeah i mean just soaking it all in but also at the same time the months went by really fast like if you're a team that went deep into june you know the off season is shorter for you so a lot of things happened the draft the signings with uh both uh Otto Porter going away and GP2 going away and then signing Dante DiVincenzo and uh Jermichael Green drafting Ryan Rollins and then Patrick Baldwin Jr and also the youth the youth movement you know it's things are going pretty fast and you know, training camp is opening in around I would say around 10 or 11 days I think and then they're going to Japan so you know just happy to be back in the grind again I'm officially back on the grind where you know I'm just looking at the <laughs> rosters looking at the matchups the potential matchups and yeah I'm just looking forward to this season and see if they can repeat so let's start with Steph Curry obviously everything orbits around him uh Krishna pulled up a great nugget earlier today we have uh when we do so we have play we have LeBron that's just our our it captures one season at a time your overall impact and then we normally do three-year LeBron because it's not enough minutes uh and then Krishna recently came out with a five-year LeBron and Steph Curry has the number one rating in the last five years of playoff LeBron there's I don't even know what I could really say about his legacy at this point but what was it like I have a fascination with aging stars uh, it's one of my favorite things in sports seeing how you know they can use their experience and their skill and their know-how to stay on top what was it like seeing Steph Curry perform this year because it was sort of a tumultuous season right they came out rolling then they had a lot of injuries and then Steph Curry had to kind of keep things afloat at certain times and make some sacrifices as the star and then carry the team to a championship in the finals with just a devastating impact what was that like to see firsthand uh, it was absolutely amazing you know not just not just <laughs> as a guy who covers the warriors but also as a basketball fan you know i mean like what you said there's this fascination with stars in their mid 30s where you want to see them you want to see if they can still excel at the level that they're supposed to that like everyone's supposed like everyone's expecting them to excel 
still like a LeBron James where, you know, like at age 35, 36, he won a, he won a title. Uh, you know, you can go back to, to like the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's, the Bill Russell's of the world, the Michael Jordan's of the world where they're in their mid-30s and they're still winning championships. And so to see Steph solidify himself as one of those guys where at age 34 and he's about to turn 35 this season and he can still do what he does best, which is warp the geometry of the floor and basically have defenses tailor their game plan to to him, where we saw the Celtics had like they tried basically everything. I mean, they tried dropping because I understand they didn't want to go. They don't. They didn't want to be in rotation against against the Warriors, but you know that drop coverage kind of backfired. Most like I would say most of the time, or I'd say 80 percent of the time, Steph would pull up. And despite good defense, good on-ball defense, he would still make those shots to the point where they tried blitzing him and everyone expected like everyone would everyone expected that to happen where Draymond or maybe even Kavon Looney at times would be that short roll man and they'd have a four on three and that's where the Celtics would get burned. And so, you know, at age thirty-four and turning thirty-five, to see defenses still have that fear of God within them. Uh, even the like, even the best defense in the league in the Boston Celtics, where they couldn't do anything to stop Steph, whatever, no matter what kind of coverage they throw at him. I mean, that's really, really fun to watch, and it's a once in a generation, once in a generation kind of thing where you have and LeBron and Steph. I mean, we had we're we have two of them at this current stage, like over north of thirty, they're still doing their thing. Uh, remains to be seen what LeBron can do with that roster in the in, like with that roster in Los Angeles, but that's another topic for another pod. So, yeah, just you know, I'm looking forward to seeing how Steph can manage the regular, the like the regular season, the grind of the regular season, how many games he can play. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he misses at least maybe 10 games, like 10 to 15. So he'll have that 65, 72 games sweet spot in the regular season and see him ramp up for the playoffs. I think that's what the Warriors are hoping for right now. And yeah, I'm just looking forward to another season of Steph. So Clay Thompson has always been the Robin to Steph's Batman, right? Uh, he obviously misses two years with the injuries. He comes back, uh, I think in like December and he's on a minutes restriction. And as the season goes, he ramps up until it seems like he's pretty much all you know, everything's a go in the playoffs. What was the uh, the return of Clay Thompson uh, looking like last season? We kind of ex- like you kind of expected someone who was coming off of like two lower leg injuries to have his ups and downs, and I would certainly say Clay had his ups and downs. Uh, you know, his like you know pre injury, you could consider Clay to have the highest highs and the lowest lows anyway. Where, you know, if he's hot, he's hot. He's not missing anything. But he'd have these, you know, three for 17, five for 20 games where he'd basically turn into this volume shooter. And he's taking these inefficient mid-range shots, pull-up shots off the dribble. And he basically had those moments this season, except, you know, he's he's not he's north of 30. Uh, he had those injuries. Uh, you know, his mobility, you know, his mobility isn't the same, 
Although, whether that's a function of just trying to get his legs under him or if it's age and the injuries, that remains to be seen because we're getting Clay for the full 82 games this upcoming season. So you'd expect him to have that a bit of an uptick in terms of effective being an effective off-ball guy. Uh, you know, you would want him to reduce the diet of his pull-up off the dribble mid-rangers, but, you know, you can't really tell Clay that at this point. He's it's like, Clay's Clay. He's going to do that no matter what. <laughs> uh, you know, but the thing about him that I'm looking forward to seeing is the defense because, you know, he had more trouble glaringly more trouble guarding those small, quick perimeter guards like he did. Like, you know, when he guarded Kyrie Irving pre-injury, that was notable because his size coupled with, you know, his his foot, his deceptively quick feet in, gave Kyrie trouble in spots during their battles in the finals. And, you know, you'd expect him to do the same to someone like a John Morant, but he had trouble keeping jaw uh, in front of him at the point of attack. And at this point of his career, you would expect him to be more of a four defensively. Uh, we, like He's always been really, really strong at the post. You know, He guarded Kevin Love in spots during the finals against the Cavs. Uh, he guarded Al Horford in the finals, and he did pretty well. I mean, I remember one time where Mark Jackson on the broadcast were like, he had Clay on... Clay had... Al Horford on him and you know they were saying it's a mismatch or I'm sorry it was uh Mark Jones who said it not Mark Jackson and I'm like I don't think that's really much of a mismatch because Clay has had a good history of holding his own in the post against big force you know the tr- traditional force like the Julius Randles and the Al Horfords of the world and so I'm looking forward to seeing if there's an uptick in his effectiveness as a perimeter player and on defense and if not I think you could see him just be that four, especially in small lineups where he guards the bigger wings and the the true power forwards. Who would you expect to kind of take on that role of guarding some of these, you know, quicker guards now if if you're kind of expecting Clay to now be more of a, a wing stopper or kind of guarding more of the bigger guys? Is it I mean, would it be Andrew Wiggins, I guess? It was kind of Gary Payton last year too. So like how do you how do you expect the words to fill that? Well, that was the concern when they lost GP2, right? Like, GP2 was starting in that Memphis series before he went down because, specifically for Jaw. And uh, in game one, he was fairly effective uh, in spots. And then he went down. And then you had Andrew Wiggins guarding Jaw, too, like, from then on during that series where, you know, Wiggins had some moment, like, memorable spots against Jaw, but overall, like, because, you know, most of it is because Jaw is Jaw. You know, he's absolutely dynamic, uh, nearly unguardable. I th- Wiggins also had trouble guarding the Jaw type of players. I mean, the Warriors aren't going to face anyone like Jaw most of the time. But you'd expect Wiggins to take some turns, too, on those small, quick perimeter guys. And I'm really interested, I'm jumping the gun a bit, but Dante DiVincenzo. I'm interested to see what he can do against the smaller guards that like, GP2 was was assigned to do last season. I mean, Dante isn't clearly like clearly he's not the same level as GP2 in terms of a perimeter guy, but you know, he he can like from the tape that I've seen of him, he can hold his own 
uh, the steal rate is pretty much similar, but he's not as handsy. He's not as a, not much of a risk taker as uh, GP2. The and as a result of that, his foul rate is also lower than GP2. GP2 had a pretty high foul rate. Uh, it's just that you know his risks ended up being more worth it, and it paid off. So I'm interested to, interested to see what what the Warriors will do with those. I think it'll be a committee. I think Wiggins will take some turns. I think Dante will take uh, some of the reps. And yeah, I'm just seeing what Steve, I'm just looking forward to how Steve Kerr will manage that. Yeah, the the data backs up. Going back to Clay Thompson for a second. Uh, the data backs up what you were saying about Clay. Uh, his pull-up shot making was virtually the same. It was weird. A lot of his impact metrics were actually similar to what they were uh, prior to the injury. It's just that the shot making, uh, the pull-up variety was at a higher volume. He wasn't the same off-ball player. Uh, his off-ball shot making was 95th percentile before the injury. Uh, this last season it was only 75th percentile. So there was still production, but it wasn't at that elite level. Uh, like you said, I looked at the, uh, we have metrics on how much time you spend guarding each position. And before the injury, a lot of point guards, a uh, ton of shooting guards and some small forwards. And then last year that kind of all slotted down uh, to, to mostly forwards. And I think that kind of reflects what you were saying. Um, yeah. DiVincenzo also, I, I kind of like him. Um, I liked him on the bucks. I felt like on ball, he was pretty good. I know he had the injury when he went to the Kings and uh, didn't play a lot of minutes, but that seemed like a pretty good, it was something like a, like a two year, $6 million contract felt, felt like pretty low risk uh, with some defensive upside. Yeah. Um, I really, I really like the signing because, you know, it's the best that they could have, had, they could have done to kind of um, put a, 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 I don't want to say put a bandaid on the wound that was the, that was created by GB2 leaving, but yeah, I mean, he's, I wouldn't, he's this kind of like the same profile as GP2. Obviously, uh, he has like the one thing that I loved about the, the Vincenzo signing is that unlike GP2, he has that spacing element too on offense. Not to say that GP2 wasn't a, an effective offensive player because GP was, you know, he knew how to play with Steph. That's the most important thing. He was screening for Steph. He was slipping those screens, cutting off off of the pole that Steph was uh, creating. And, you know, the film that I'm seeing on DiVincenzo, I think he can replicate those to a certain degree. I mean, he can set screens for Steph. He can cut. I mean, he's an effective cutter. Uh, you know, he can be – he can – and with the added element of being a better three-point shooter than GP2. So, yeah, I'm looking. I'm really looking forward to how he'll try to replicate the production, the playmaking. I mean, GP2 – you could make an argument that he's one of the best defensive playmakers in the league. I mean, he proved that last season, especially in the playoffs. So, I mean, if he can, if if Dante can replicate at least maybe 70 to 80% of that, I mean, I think they'll be fine. Yeah. I think, uh, I think Gary Payton, the second made our basketball index, all defensive team. I'm not sure which one it was, but I remember putting him on the graphic. I'm pretty sure. Um, moving on Jordan pool. He had a, crazy breakout year um how did that happen what did it what did it look like it looked like he was kind of like a doppelganger steph curry that's like <laughs> you know like he's that first round against the nuggets when he was a liquid lava yeah that was absurd yeah and you know that was i think that was an underrated part of their playoff run where steph was coming back from 
uh, an injury, the you know the Marcus Smart injury, and he started he started on the bench for basically the first three or four games of the first round, and you know Steph there was no need for Steph to start until the last game, the closeout game, because you know Jordan Poole was just so effective as their starter, their point guard basically, and you know just him the 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 main thing that i see that made him leap out so much last season is just his i would say his handle his the way he can keep his dribble uh he can keep possessions alive and also his playmaking his passing uh improved i mean i don't like i don't have the um, i don't have the metrics right now but based on the eye test he's just more he's just more confident in making the reads uh, he's making the correct reads. That's the most important thing. Uh, off the pick and roll, he's always been a pretty decent playmaker. Uh, just in, like in the 2020 to 21 season, he had this partnership with James Wiseman in the pick and roll, where he could just you know carve defenses up in the in ball screen and just you know just score or pass it to anyone at any point of the floor. And that kind of that you kind of saw that evolution last season where. Uh, he was adept at taking advantage of the situations that were created in terms of, you know, they were creating all of these gravity advantages that Steph would create uh, to a lesser extent, like where they he would attract double teams where, you know, they'd switch a big man onto him and he'd take him off the dribble. And he'd always, almost always make the correct decision. Not all the time, you know, he still had spots where he turned the ball over, uh, where he'd go to the rim against, uh, like into a sea of help defenders, and he'd miss the shot. But yeah, I mean, just him being getting to the rim more, and you know, the Warriors are not the most traditional kind of rim pressure generating team, where most of their rim pressure comes from opportunistic cuts, and no one on the team, save for Jordan Poole and Andrew Wiggins and Jonathan Kaminga, can really get create their own rim pressure shots and him like acquiring that skill set did a lot for them in my opinion so i think that's more of one of the more understated aspects is him being a rim pressure generating machine basically yeah i think you're the the data really backs up what you're saying he had a huge jump in self-created shot making uh in 2020 it was 29th percentile so nothing nothing to write home about and that jumped to 94th percentile which is an insane jump uh and then one of the other things you talk about the improved ball handling his rim shot creation jumped from 55th percentile so about league average to 85th percentile and that's definitely a noticeable jump uh that's an interesting point you say uh about the warriors non-traditional rim pressure um i think that's a great call out because you know so much of it it feels like you know, there's a slip screen there, you know, there's some back motion somewhere away from the ball that creates something. And uh, I feel like the team, the original core really had that like in a non-traditional sense where they didn't have someone that was just like a 98th percentile get to the rim and create everything off that, you know, player. Yeah, I mean, they're always going to be that kind of team where their rim pressure is highly opportunistic in nature. Um and you kind of had that. You kind of had that in the younger Steph Curry. 
Uh, he still generates. He can get. He can. He can still get to the rim whenever he wants. It's just that some of his finishes are gonna be more of an adventure at this point of his career, where you know he's <laughs> obviously not good, not as spry. Uh, he's not as quick, uh, and he has to be more creative in his finishes. He has to get get more of that those reverse layups, uh, the English on the board, and to have someone like Jordan Poole, where he's basically a younger, I would say more athletic version of Steph Curry. And more dynamic too at the point of attack where his first step is can be blazing fast. It's it's good. It's good to have, and it's basically it's it's gonna be interesting to see how they'll value that skill set going into contract negotiations. I mean, that's a whole nother co- topic, you know. Of who are they gonna choose? Is it Jordan Poole and his offense, or is it Andrew Wiggins and his th- valuable three and D wing skill set? So, yeah, I'm just looking forward to that kind of situation. It's it's a contract year basically for a lot of the guys, and you know, guys play their hearts out on con in contract years, and I'm expecting Jordan Poole to be no different. Yeah, he he seems like a guy that would just have an absolutely crazy contract here. That mm-hmm. he definitely fits that mold. Um, Draymond Green, he had a career high in our playmaking grade this season. Uh, still really good defensive numbers on our end, uh, including the playoffs. But is there anything? I know it, it, I know he missed some time with injury. He is aging. Uh, you know, he's on the wrong side of thirty. Um, still great impact, but are you seeing any signs of decline? Because I feel like we, we really haven't seen a player like him, uh, at that kind of crazy defensive impact at that, you know, he's not that tall, but he has the crazy wingspan blows up a lot of plays. Um, I have no idea what that's going to look like as father time slowly wins. Uh, what are you seeing? I think Draymond is going to be the biggest question mark going forward because, you know, um, He's definitely probably the best defensive player. I mean, top two, maybe top three. To me, he's still the best uh, just because of the versatility of his defensive playmaking, his skill set. And, you know, like I was looking this up the other day in the finals, he was like in non-garbage time. He was like the Warriors were actually nine points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor defensively. And that's still pretty big. And despite... You know, despite the the narrative where his offense really took a dive during the finals, and you can see that. I mean, he got benched. He got benched for Kevon Looney <laughs> in Game Four. Uh, you know, offense defense substitution. To me, uh, the offense it's more of a psychological thing where Draymond is like really, really reluctant to score at times. He has an open layup, but he kicks it out to someone on the perimeter or someone in the dunker spot. And, you know, the one thing defensively where his athleticism or a lack of it at this point plays a huge factor is defensive rebounding. Um, if you if you remember back in like 2016, 2017, and maybe even uh, parts of 2018, where he was just this absolute demon on the boards, where he'd tap out he'd tap out balls to his teammates. Uh, you know, when he gets the ball, he just takes it all the way in fast break situations. And that's what the Warriors count on him doing. It's just being this guy who gobbles up all the boards, this boards, despite his small size, 
like that that wing that wingspan that long arms help but he was just this athletic like I wouldn't say an athletic freak but his athleticism really helped in that department whereas now his defensive rebounding numbers are you know on a deep de- like I would say a deep decline compared to 2016 2017 and most of that most definitely like it's definitely because of the lack of athleticism the lack of leap vertical leap um you know defensively I'm not worried about him uh but yeah it's just that defensive rebounding where I'm like concerned yeah I think that's a good uh that's that's a good thing to take a look at uh all right uh Joe thanks for joining us thanks for getting us up to speed on the state of the Warriors Joe V Rye uh what is your Twitter handle it's at Jovirai NBA. Uh, you can follow me there. You can follow my work at Golden State of Mind. Uh, you know, you can expect me to do what I did last year, which is just you know game re- game recaps, analysis breakdowns. Uh, the grind is starting again, and yeah, let's do it again for 82 games plus. Oh yeah, Joe, getting in the trenches. I love it. <laughs> uh, well, that's gonna wrap it up for this podcast. I'm Taylor. Thank you, Krishna, for producing, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Basketball Index Podcast.